Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or your renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am in the Christmas spirit. I am immersed, saturated in the Christmas spirit. Having a great day. How was Christmas? You have a good one? You know, anytime you're with family and friends, it's a good time. But there's just, I don't know, man. Christmas is still christmas it's still that special there's a lot of holidays i think thanksgiving probably is my favorite holiday close second would be the fourth of july because it's just about being together it's not about you know gift giving or any of that it's no matter what your faith is or lack thereof it's that time of year we can all just get together and kind of forget for the moment about what's going on but christmas is always special so i'm it, it, it was great. And it always will be. That's a good attitude to have. And I agree. We hope you guys had a great holiday. Of course, we're right around the corner from uh, new year's Eve. Hope everybody is safe. And uh, let's hope that 2021 is a little different from 2020. Uh, but with that in mind, we're going to go back and talk about something that we all wish was different with the benefit of hindsight. Eric's first starcade <laughs> starcade 1991. Now this isn't just any old starcade. No, it's not the gathering or a flare for the gold or night of the skywalkers. This is battle bowl lethal lottery. And I went down, uh, gosh, I can't believe this is real. 29 years ago today, December 29th at the Norfolk scope in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, they've got 9,000 fans there about 7,600 were paying, uh, $92,000. So this is not quite the WCW that you're going to captain the ship of during the height of the NWO. But it is the ninth Starcade, and it feels kind of weird saying that. Uh, but this event even predated WrestleMania. This really is the the original granddaddy of them all, Starcade. But we tinker with the format. Um, you weren't around for those Starcades. You are here for this one. Did you have an expectation of Starcade after you had heard so much about it? Conrad, I was in still in a state of bliss. I was so happy to have a job. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, as we've discussed, you know, prior to coming to, to WCW, the last year and a half or so of being in AWA was tough. You know, I, I stuck it out way longer than I should have financially that had a pretty adverse impact on my family and our finances. So this is like one of the first Christmas seasons where, I could do for my kids what I wanted to do for my kids and and everything was still new. I had been with WCW by this point for a few months, but to me it was still, man, it still had that new car smell and I wasn't analyzing. I wasn't critiquing. I didn't even have an opinion of anything. I just wanted to show up and do the best job I could do. So I was probably like everybody else. Um, a lot of, you know, really passionate WCW fans. I was just looking forward to being part of the event. 
Well, here we are battle bowl. Uh, the show does 155,000 buys on pay-per-view, which is actually the best one since wrestle war 91. Uh, so it's estimated to be around a $3 million gross slightly down from the year prior Starcade 90 did 165,000 buys, but this is also the first WCW Starcade. Previously, all the events had been held under the NWA banner, but of course, 91 was uh, a challenging year on a lot of fronts. Uh, Ric Flair has gone and left with the world title. And we've also had a nasty split with the NWA. It's, uh, it's gotta be weird to see all of this happening. And you're, I guess, uh, self-described as a C string announcer, but to your point, just probably happy to be here. I was thrilled to be there. <laughs> I mean, I was thrilled to be there. And let's kind of like capture a little bit of the world as it was in 1991. One of the most exciting things I think of this week is Ted Turner was named Times Person of the Year. And Turner was named such because of the CNN's coverage of Operation Desert Storm and the Gulf War and <clears throat> really established Ted as a true pioneer and visionary in, in global media. So the feeling was good, or as they would say, the crack was good. <laughs> this is, uh, an interesting time for the company to say the least. Um, let's talk about Jim Hurd for a minute. We're smack dab at the end of the Jim Hurd era. We know that, uh, he's going to leave the following month. It's also going to present an opportunity for people to move up and you're slowly, but surely going to get there. Of course, Watts will be in next chat me up about Jim Hurd. I think, uh, you were famously hired because he wanted to motivate Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. Do I have that right? Well, I mean, that's what Jim told me. I, there may have been other reasons, but the one that I was given, you know, the day that I was hired, uh, directly from from Jim Hurd himself was, you know, something to the effect that I'm paraphrasing here, but kid, you know, I'm hiring you to put some pressure on Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. I don't know what their pressure was, by the way, because clearly after reviewing the show this morning, I sucked. I, I did. I looked like a cardboard cutout or a mannequin for a Genghis formal wear franchise somewhere in a mall. Um, <clears throat> I had no range emotionally. And part of that was because of the position I, I was in. I was more of a game show host in, in this episode or this pay-per-view more than anything else. So my, my energy level was at a constant nine, uh, which is a little overdone and was kind of obnoxious and slightly embarrassing, but didn't matter to me, man. I was thrilled to be there for whatever, you know, Jim Hurd's motivations were, um, didn't matter to me, man. Like I've said before, I would have taken them both out, out in the parking lot if that would have been a job requirement at that point because I really needed the gig. But, yeah, looking back, uh, I don't know what Jim's motivations were. I mean, I was decent at, as, at certain things at this point in my career. I think I was far better at play-by-play -play than I was as a host as I was being positioned here or a game show host. But, nonetheless, thrilled, thrilled to be there. And, like I said, I didn't analyze, critique. I didn't even wonder too much, you know, why some of the decisions were being made or any of the decisions were being made. Like I said, I just was, you know, in, <clears throat> when you 
trained to become a fighter. You're, you're taught to, you know, fight as much as you can with your, you know, tuck your chin. Just keep your chin tucked. Whatever you're doing, don't don't lead with your chin because it it will end up badly for you. And I was in my own way, just keeping my chin tucked and doing the best I could at whatever assignment I was giving by Jim Hurd or Jim Ross. I actually worked for Jim Ross at this point. Tony Schiavone was more of my day-to-day direct supervisor. I think Tony reported to Jim Ross at this stage. Could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. And uh, although Jim Ross was technically my supervisor, uh, Tony was the one that was kind of directing me day, day by day and you know, I was just, like I said, if they would have said, Eric, take out the garbage, I would have done so with the same level of over-exuberance as I did <laughs> performing on this show. The Jim Hurd thing has been super fun for me to revisit this year because we just interviewed him with adfreeshows.com. But this concept, Battle Bowl, technically happens on his watch, but this feels like a Dusty Rhodes idea. Would that be fair to say? You know, that was kind of a prevailing thought I had while I was reviewing the show. This has Dusty's fingerprints all over it in so many different ways. And I've said this before, you know, on this podcast, um, you know, Dusty's, this is just my opinion. I never, never talked to Dusty about this. So this is just an opinion and an impression. But I think Dusty's creative process and in, in consciousness throughout the day and in, in the evenings leaned more towards the spectacle and, and creating as big of a spectacle as he possibly could. And I think this was an attempt uh, and, and Dusty had others. So, so did I um, d- later on, but I think this was Dusty's attempt to come up with a very unique format that had not been done before. And, you know, it's easy to be critical and, and I'm probably going to, not going to be on this this particular podcast because it's just too easy to be critical. Sometimes it's cheap heat in a way, in a very big way, it's cheap heat. Anybody can be critical of anything, especially after the fact, as I've said so many millions of times before. But uh, I think this was Dusty trying to serve several masters, including Jim Hurd, who I'm assuming had a lot of put a lot of pressure, but this did have, I'm not blaming this or assigning uh, this concept to Jim Hurd in any way, but when you serve three or four different masters in some cases, you're, you're challenged. And I, I think Dusty's response to that challenge was to try to come up with something that was really big and memorable. Let's talk about some news and notes outside of WCW. Inside Edition is doing a story with a bunch of lengthy interviews with superstar Billy Graham, uh, David Schultz, David's 20-year-old daughter, Jesse Schultz, and they're all talking about anabolic steroids, and they're going to air the first few days of January. It's a major story. It's going to become a much bigger story that's going to result in some serious legal ramifications for Vince McMahon, but most importantly... It's going to tarnish the brand Hulk Hogan. Were you watching this even casually? I know at this point you didn't know Hulk Hogan. Uh, you didn't know Terry Bollea. Uh, you had only met Vince McMahon probably one time when you did the whole broom shit, but this is going to be something that's obviously going to be on your radar. Major shockwave through the industry. No, no, surprisingly, 
So maybe because I was in that <clears throat> constant state of bliss and my own personal life had improved so much and and I was thinking so positively that I didn't really I didn't pay attention. I know that sounds crazy, right? Somebody that's in the industry, uh, not really acknowledging or, or paying much attention to something that was then and would, as you pointed out correctly, would, would continue to, to not only be a big story, but a, a story that at one point arguably could have cratered the entire wrestling industry. Had, had WWF gone down, had Vince McMahon you know, gone to jail, uh, and there was a real threat of that, you know, at, at one point. Um, who knows where the industry would have gone? Who knows if Turner would have, you know, stuck it out? I, I don't know. We can all speculate. But it as big of a story as it was, man, I was just thanking God and Jim Hurd <laughs> and, and everybody else involved. So I, I wasn't paying attention as ridiculous as that sounds. Let's talk about a light heavyweight match that happens with Jushin Liger and Brian Pillman at the Omni on Christmas night. Uh, Scott Hudson would call it the best live match he's ever seen that didn't involve Ric Flair and Meltzer would write reports are Liger and Pillman were at around four stars every night during the week. Although the reaction for Liger varied. In New York, he was over huge and he and Pillman were giving a standing ovation after their match in Dallas. He was booed as a heel, even though it was a great match. And in Atlanta, the crowd reacted after two minutes, much like a Japanese crowd in cheering for both men. Uh, George Michael's sports machine on NBC on Sunday night would even air clips and call Jushin Liger the most outstanding wrestler in the world in 1991. Did you see any of their stuff here? In 91? No, I didn't because I was living in Minneapolis at the time and I, I, Turner would fly me in the night before any of the events that I was going to participate in. So I, I didn't go to any of the house shows and, and really wasn't aware of what was going on in the non-televised shows. You make the newsletters because you had a syndicated episode of main event air where Liger was teaming with Oz. Yes, that's real. To take on Hiro Saito and Scott Norton. And uh, it's mentioned here that Bischoff continually referred to Saito as Hiro Tatsuki. Now, granted, it really doesn't make a difference to most people viewing, but I sure hope when you see college basketball games with players that you have no idea who they are, that the announcers don't have so little respect for their audience as to call them by the wrong name. Uh, after all, they could figure that they could get away with it because the majority of the viewers wouldn't know the difference. Did anybody ever even tell you that you were calling the guy the wrong name? No, this is the first time I've heard. <laughs> and who wrote that, by the way? Dave Meltzer. I'm sorry, who did? Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer. This is the same guy who misspelled Dr. David Schultz's name um, in his newsletter. So I'll, I'll take that criticism. I, I If I indeed did make that mistake, and I'm going to give uh, Dave the benefit of the doubt here and, and stipulate that I indeed did. Um, but it's a weird criticism from a guy that misspells Dr. David Schultz's name. Uh, apparently there was some um, news and notes uh, backstage. I know you weren't paying attention to uh, the, the traditional wrestling news, but this rumor mill probably made the news. 
Apparently there was a fight in a bar between PN news and Rick rude over in England. Here's what Meltzer had to say. The reason they did the TV angle where PN news had his eye run into the ring post by Mr. Hughes was because news returned from England with an eye swollen shut courtesy of an altercation with Rick rude. Uh, news couldn't beat rude with both arms against one arm in wrestling and things got out of hand. And in reality, even though these are guys who look much more powerful with the exception of Scott Norton, there probably isn't anyone in pro wrestling who could put rude's arm down. Of course, rude had a reputation as being a badass arm wrestler. Apparently things went too far and P and news not only lost, but, uh, got his eyes shut. You remember hearing about this? I do not. And, and, and by the way, I, I didn't really hear you clearly. What was the setup? Who was arm wrestling whom? P and news and Rick rude. And what was the end result of that? A closed, a closed eye. Well, I know that, but who, who won the arm wrestling match? Rick rude beat him with, uh, P and news used both arms. Rick rude used one. So I'm just wondering, you know, and I, I don't know P and news. I can't even remember his real name when, and I apologize for that. But can you imagine a guy like Rick and Rick had a Rick had a reputation. I don't think it was a surprise to anybody that Rick Rude was a badass. But when you're as big as a guy as Pia News and you can't beat Rick Rude with both hands, why in the hell would you want to tangle with him? Yeah. I I think, again, no disrespect to Mr. News, but geez, he deserved to get his ass kicked just for being so stupid. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. Um, some disenchantment over clauses in the new contracts regarding injuries, old contracts had the wrestlers paid while they were injured. New contracts were being offered that only pay the wrestlers for the first two months of their injury. Meltzer would say, considering the hard hitting style, this groups, this group professes to want injuries are inevitable, both minor ones and serious ones. At the same time, I'm sure management wasn't exactly thrilled over Sid justice, taking time off from wrestling while still playing softball and claiming to be recovering from a punctured lung. This is a delicate balancing act, isn't it? I mean, you've got to have a policy that lets guys recover, but at the same time, you need them to show up for work. Yeah. A couple of things are interesting about this and I, you know, this is not me being defensive or anything like that, but isn't it interesting when, when we talk about narrative and coverage, by peripheral media. I'm being kind here because it's a holiday season. I didn't even refer to it as a dirt sheet. But isn't it isn't it interesting how in 1991, um, you know, my my Turner employee ID is still not fully dried yet. The ink is still wet. Um, but yet a couple years later, I was in the narrative that we would be hearing so much of. I was the one responsible for those guaranteed contracts that allowed people to stay at home and still get paid. But yet here it is in 1991. So um, yeah, it is a delicate balancing act, but again, you, you know, it was a tough situation for WCW and Jim Hurd because WCW wasn't generating revenue and house shows and pay-per-views, not to the extent where profit sharing was a realistic uh, way of compensating independent contractors. So well, the only choice they had was to guarantee contracts. And with those guarantees came all the subsequent complexities, loopholes, abuse by talent, um, mismanagement by management, all of the above. 
and it started fairly early. Let's um, let's talk about Missy Hyatt. It's written here. Missy Hyatt and Eric Bischoff are now hosting a specific version of WCW pro just for the Los Angeles market. What do you remember about this? I had no idea this was a thing. Neither do I remember nothing about it. It may have been a short lived attempt. Um, God, this is really, this is 30 years ago, folks. So, you know, if you're going to bust my chops for not being able to remember this, so be it. Um, guilty as charged. Um, it is, was likely a, it was likely an experiment. It had a short run. Otherwise I probably would remember it. And if my memory from 30 years ago is remotely correct, I think it was a buy on meaning Turner was buying time on what I think was KTLA. I'm really digging here folks. Uh, and I'm not sure what the rationale would be or the logic would have been other than maybe to put two people that didn't look so traditional wrestling announcer ish, uh, into an LA market for obvious reasons, because LA is LA, right? It's all about the look and not so much about the substance still holds true today, but no, not a political commentary, just an observation. It's all how you look. Um, that's my only guess because it, it, it doesn't stand out in my mind. Like I said, if we did six or eight episodes, I'd be surprised. Lex Luger is going to give notice. And this is a uh, major news. Uh, Meltzer would write, um, Lex Luger officially gave notice that he'd be finishing up on the February 29th pay-per-view show. His three-year contract with WCW expires in March of 93, but he's expected to be given a limited release, which would allow him to wrestle during the final year of his contract in Japan, but not in the United States, which would put a block on him going to the WWF until the spring of 93. He's not scheduled to work any house shows or TV tapings for the remainder of this month. I don't have any details on February scheduling, although it was expected Luger wouldn't work any house shows except Milwaukee, uh, but would work the TV tapings uh, for shows that would air at least prior to the pay-per-view. And this leads to the rumor that was uh, essentially denied by Vince McMahon that Luger was quitting his contract estimated at $600,000 per year in base salary and a $25,000 pay-per-view event to join the world bodybuilding federation for one year and then have a wrestling angle shot and then segue into the WWF. Now, of course we know what wound up happening. He shows up at WrestleMania the next year on a, on a video interview where he's pr- plugging the WBF. Eventually he does come in. Had you made any sort of relationship at all yet with Lex Luger? None whatsoever. Um, you know, Lex, Lex was very, um, aloof. Uh, I did interviews with Lex. I worked with him a little bit before those interviews, kind of walking through them and maybe doing a dry run or two before we actually shot them. But that was the extent of any relationship at all I had with Lex. I, you know, I, I kind of stayed away from, I stayed away from everybody. You know, like when I say I kept my chin down, I, although I was still pretty green and very green in the industry as it relates to a big company, you know, AWA where I came from was, you know, everybody I worked with was either a pretty good friend or, you know, felt like family to a degree. So it was a different 
environment. You know, when I got to WCW, it was, it was the difference between, you know, if you operated a, a small, you know, mom and pop grocery store on a street corner, and then all of a sudden you were working at a, you know, national food chain, grocery store chain, everything was different. And my instinct for survival was, you know, keep your chin down. Don't get sucked into the politics. Don't try to get to know anybody too well. Um, just do your work. And, and, and because Lex was, and there were a couple exceptions to that, obviously, you know, people that I already knew, Diamond Dale's Page, Larry Zabisco, you know, there were certain people there that I was already, you know, familiar with or had worked with in some cases and had a relationship with. But a guy like, like Lex Luger, I just, I did my work as best I could and really stayed out of his way. Um, and, and because Lex was so aloof, I didn't have to work too hard at staying out of his way. Let's uh, let's talk about what you think the impact could have been. I mean, we know you're going to eventually lure him back, uh, and he's going to be uh, a big part of your very first Nitro. But what if he wouldn't have left? Do you think his career trajectory would have been any different within WCW? That's a really good question, Conrad. That's one of those questions that you know we all just have to think about, and and it's it's a what if question, and I love those, and, and there's no right answer. Uh, my gut tells me that Lex Luger would have never gone on to become the star he became in WCW. You know, arguably when WCW in 96 and 97 and 98 at the peak of, of WCW's run during that period of time, I think Lex Luger was a much bigger star then than he was, you know, in 1991. But I don't think that would have happened. I think the chemistry, I think Lex had some growing to do, as we all do. Uh, and I was thinking about Lex actually yesterday. I'm going to reach out and give him a call. Because he, Lex is one of those people that I, I never thought I would hear myself say this, but somebody that I, I admire. I, I look up to Lex. Every time I see a picture of Lex, you know, I can feel the, the joy, despite everything that he's had to go through. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure some of us, could come out of what Lex Luger has gone through as well as Lex has. And obviously it's his faith and, and, and the turnaround that his relationship with, with Christ and his view of religion, all of that took him on a completely different path. And all of that was a result of a pretty dramatic and traumatic experience in his life. And it's unfortunate. It's God, it's horrible to say this, I guess, but Sometimes people have to go through significant changes in their life to really put things in their proper perspective. And although what I'm about to say pales in every comparison, in any comparison to what Lex has gone through, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, um, I think Lex needed to go through professionally what he went through in 91 and 92 and 93 in order for Lex to come back in 95, I think it was 95. Yeah, it was 95. Yeah. In order for Lex to come back in 1995 with a different perspective and perhaps take, you know, a different look at his own personal inventory. Um, and, I, and I think when Lex did realize that he had to make some changes personally, um, it made him a better person and it made him a better talent. And I, had Lex not gone through all of that, I don't know that he would have arrived at the same 
conclusion by 1995 that he did. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or your renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to GEICO.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's GEICO easy. Visit GEICO.com today. That's GEICO.com. Let's talk about the uh, the lead-in to the show here uh, from a storyline standpoint. Before Starcade, Sting is in a feud with Rick Rude and Lex Luger. Back in July, of course, Luger won the world title and vacated the U.S. championship. As a result of that, Sting wins a tournament to become the new U.S. champ, uh, but then he winds up in contention to become the world heavyweight champ. Luger sees Sting as a threat and has Abdul the Butcher and Cactus Jack try to injure him. On October 27th, Rude makes his return, and he makes Sting his first target. So Luger ambushes Sting at Clash of the Champions, which we just talked about on 83 weeks a few weeks ago. And that allows Rude to win the U.S. title from Sting later that same night. Do you like the uh, the storytelling device of whoever's U.S. champ is number one contender for the world title? Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. The lack of structure, and I'm not talking about storytelling structure. I'm storytelling devices, parameters, rules. Um, there's a lot of variations of structure, but without any kind of logic, it's really hard to create meaningful stakes. And we often hear people talking about making belts mean something, you know, that's a, that's a general criticism I've been hearing since 1987 and people talk about it all the time. But I think one of the ways that making a championship mean something is the establishment of structure that creates a journey. And that journey is a big part of the story. You can't have a great story without some form of journey. Um, and I think when you have the structure of a U.S. title being the last step to the ultimate prize, that inherently creates a lot of story structure potential. And without it, it's just random. Matches are made randomly. The stakes as a result are kind of non-existent. Theoretically, they exist, I guess. But it sure works a lot better when you've got a structure in place where the audience has already been conditioned to understand and know without the announcer driving at home, without vignettes, without any of the other supportive creative materials and devices that one can come up with. When there's that inherent structure that people already understand, the stakes are already there. You don't have to create them. You don't have to shoot an angle to make them up. They're there. And I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot, you know, I, I, I'm a firm believer that you can't go back to the way things used to be, to the way you used to produce anything. Nobody does successfully. 
but that doesn't mean there aren't some elements of what worked in the past that you can't adapt or adopt. I'm going to say adapt. I'm not sure which it is. I think it's adapt that you cannot adapt to the current product to enhance it. And I think that, you know, an example, one of the things I like about AEW right now is the rankings because it provides that inherent opportunity for conflict right off the bat. Even if there's nothing going on today with regard to conflict as a result of standings, the potential is there so that when you call back to it, television term, callback, storytelling term, callback, when you call back to it and you need it, it's right there. You're not making it all up all at once. The stuff isn't just popping up out of nowhere because it's inherent and you don't have to use it all the time. But when you need it, it's there and the audience already understands it. They've already been exposed to it. And now all you need to do is create the conflict that can be born out of it, out it being, in this case, the AEW rankings. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I'm a big fan of that type of device and structure. I think it's sorely lacking in today's product. You know, I'm going to go off and I'm going to go off on a tangent. It's early in the show, but I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. You know, in addition to what we see AEW doing with the rankings, I did it in TNA with the Bound for Glory series, which was an attempt, good or bad, but it was an attempt to kind of build anticipation and structure leading to conflict that would culminate at Bound for Glory. Um, I'm not going to use that as an example, but just a reference point in, in terms of why I've always believed this. I'm not just making it up because you ask a great question. But one of the things that I think could happen, perhaps, you have to be careful how you do it, but what does it mean to be a world champion today? Mm. Why do people fight for that? Why is it really a goal? It's not stated. You know, in, in, in culturally, in the past, you know, in boxing in particular, you know, winning a world heavyweight championship means you won the largest share of the purse. You became a multi, multi, multi-millionaire <clears throat> if you were a Muhammad Ali or a Joe Frazier or Ken Norton even for for a brief period of time, or Sugar Ray Leonard, name whatever boxing legend you want. It was about the money. We've lost that. What what does it really mean? Why, if I'm I'm out there competing and, and becoming a world champion, what does it really mean in an honest, relatable way for the audience? All it means is you're going to be in the main event a lot. Right. There's nothing that the average person can relate to stakes. They're non-existent. It's just, dare I say, and I hate to say it because I don't, I think the guy that coined the phrase was Vince Russo, but in this case, the, the championship is really nothing but a prop. It's something to hold on to while you're telling a story, but it's not relatable to the audience. And I think going back to your original question, things like 
the U.S. title being the last stop on your way to win that grand prize, the ultimate prize, the ultimate goal of a world championship, and then being able to speak freely and honestly about what that means. I would love to hear a WWE talent, and this would be so corporately and politically incorrect right now, but I would love to hear, you know, a Roman Reigns, in addition to whatever story he's got going on right now, and I'm not sure Roman Reigns is really a heel or a babyface at this point, but that's another conversation. Um, but what does it mean to him personally, from a financial point of view that people can relate to? I don't know. I think things like that are important because consciously or subconsciously, they resonate with the audience. Just like subconsciously or consciously, you know, one would know that if Rick Rude became the U.S. heavyweight champion or Sting became the U.S. heavyweight champion, that's the last stop on the ride to, to, to the promised land. And, and, and that becomes very clear early on, and it makes everything else so much easier from a storytelling point of view. So I would like to see structure and relatable stakes and discussion about why does anybody really care if they become a world champion? Really? Yeah, I mean, we all know, even passive, you know, casual fans understand that talent is now under contract. They're going to get paid. They're not sure how much they're getting paid because that's not supposed to be disclosed anymore. We can't talk about those things anymore. You'll get chastised and or fired if you do. But that's what people relate to. That's why people are living partially, why people are living vicariously through the people that they love and adore as, as baby faces. That's why the casual fan can easily hate, you know, the heel that's preventing their favorite baby face from achieving that ultimate goal. But if those stakes aren't there, if they're not implied or, or at least positioned in a way that the average person can really relate to, the average person can't relate to the fact that if Roman Reigns wins the World Heavyweight Championship, he gets a really, really cool touring bus as a dressing room. Right. They don't relate to it. First of all, they don't really know it. But even if they did, yeah, yeah that's a perk. Tell me about the money, man. What does it mean to your life? What does it mean to your children? What does it mean for your future? Why is it so freaking important to you? And it's not all about the money. There can be other things, but I, I don't often hear those other things articulated within the context of story or interviews or vignettes or anything else. It's just, oh, he's the champion. Okay, so what? Well, that just means he's going to be on a pay-per-view next month. Oh, okay, cool. And to your point, back in the day, they used to say, like Gorilla Monsoon said it all the time. Oh, he's getting the winner's purse tonight. Uh, and, and even in the UFC, you know, we understand as, as UFC fans, you get, you know, 50 to show 50, if you win, so you get a win bonus, but to your point, that's not the way wrestling is discussed. Look, we all fight for money every single day, every day. We either fight for it or we're fighting the results of not having it. Oof. It's what makes the world go round folks. It's so common and so inherent in every human being's existence that it's just such a, it's low hanging fruit folks for a storytelling device. Now I understand the, you know, the complexities of contracts and jealousy and 
all of the political ramifications of everybody knowing what everybody else is making. And you can make shit up, you know, like Vergani used to have the hundred thousand dollar check for whoever won the, you know, team Turkey challenge series or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> but, you know, make it real folks, make it real, make it honest. And you'll be amazed how much positive impact it'll have on your storytelling opportunities because people will relate to it. It's not hokey anymore. You're not making silly shit up. You mentioned a minute ago that these days you can't talk about it. You might get chastised or even fired. Did you ever hear of someone getting fired in the WWF for talking about what they made? No, I never have. I never have. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't accusing anybody of having done it. WWE firing anybody, certainly WCW firing anybody. I can tell you my perspective when <clears throat> I would find out or believe sometimes I didn't have any proof. That's always elusive yeah. in so many of these situations. Proof is elusive. But um, when I was convinced that someone was either bragging about or using how much they were making in order to stir things up in a locker room or to antagonize somebody else, um, it would dra- dramatically in a profound way, impact my level of respect for said talent. It, it changed a lot of things for me. Conversely, you know, people like Steve Borden, for example, Sting. I'm, I'm sure, you know, he and Lex probably had conversations about it, but he kept his shit to himself, kept his business to himself. He was professional about it. But I can only imagine in WWE, if the word got out, especially in WWE back in the day before even downside guarantees, I mean, I can, I'm not going to relate the stories because I wasn't a part of it. I didn't hear it myself and I wasn't in the room when they were being shared. So I don't know for sure if they're true or not, but I've heard many stories directly from the individuals involved, how they would use information that they either came across um, accidentally or intentionally in one case in particular, late night going through the office and finding information that they weren't supposed to find, how they would use that to, to stir shit up in a locker room. You know, if I couldn't fire somebody for that, I certainly would want to. Well, listen, you made mention of it a minute ago. Who were the shit disturbers in WCW? Name names. What the fuck? It's been 20 years. Oh, fuck. Almost everybody. It's not a matter of, you know, not wanting to name names, but it's really hard you know, again, in 91, I can't tell you because I wasn't hanging around in a locker room. You know, I, I didn't talk to a lot of people. I didn't want to be a fly on the wall. In fact, I would avoid being a fly on the wall um, for this very reason because I didn't want to get sucked into it or be accused of participating in it just because I happened to be standing next to someone who was having a conversation that they should have been having. So I avoided it like the plague and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, there are one or two people, but I'm not going to name them because actually they're friends of mine now. And, and it serves no real purpose other than to dig up dirt. That dirt doesn't matter anymore, but it existed. You know, WCW was a toxic political environment from the day I showed up and probably before I showed up because everybody, it was opportunistic. It was a new company. There wasn't a lot of great management in place. There wasn't a tremendous amount. And I'm not being critical of Jim Hurd or Kip Fry or even Bill Watts. There wasn't a lot of real 
leadership in, in WCW, nor was there on my watch for, for a period of, uh, arguably for, for my run. I, I wasn't good at that. I, I left a lot to be desired when it came to leadership with, with regard to managing talent and the way they conducted themselves either in the, either in the arena or outside of the arena. Um, but I, God, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. Let's talk about battle bowl. Eric, I want you to pretend for a minute that you're describing the battle bowl concept to someone for the very first time. They have no idea what it is or how it works. How would you as a wrestling insider, someone who was there, how would you explain this to someone? That is the toughest question you've ever asked me (laughs) in two years of doing this over two years now of doing this show, I guess that is one of the hardest questions you've ever asked me. And honestly, when I sat down and watched it this morning to, to prep for this podcast, I didn't understand it. I had a hard time understanding it as I was listening to Shivani and Ross lay out the format. I would have a really difficult time explaining it. it. You know, it was a, competition elimination tournament format that resulted in starting with starting with 40 people in the ring, I guess it was, and ending with two. And I would throw in the towel and hope that the conversation changed from that point on. Uh, Meltzer right in the tradition of the famed bunkhouse stampede. Now there's battle bowl. If there's one thing that can sum up Starcade 91, it's the WCW produced a pay-per-view that wasn't even as good as most of its recent free Saturday night TV shows. It's one of those shows where you sat there and wait for what would happen next, figuring they were saving something special, but that something special never came before going on. What needs to be mentioned before anything else was the camera work as they managed to miss far too many spectacular spots. Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone were frequently making references to moves or incidents, not just in the battle Royal but in many of the tag matches that the viewer couldn't see because the cameras reported somewhere else. It's considered a cardinal sin for an announcer to talk about something the viewer can't see because it makes the poor camera work obvious, but geez, if they didn't, we'd never know that there was actually some good stuff taking place inside that building. So that sort of sets the stage. Uh, he also says, I've always thought the blind tag gimmick is a great one for a special television show or a clash because it's an easy way to set up new angles between partners or rivals drawn blindly. I was against it on pay-per-view from the start because of a lack of specific matchups. And that's usually what sells the event. Even though the buy rate might not be as bad as the last pay-per-view because right after Christmas seems to be the perfect time to run a pay-per-view we'll see in a few days, but my gut feeling is the buy rate won't be very good. However, none of the teased dream matches like Steiner versus Steiner or Sting and Rude as a team took place. The closest thing was Freebird versus Freebird, which nobody was exactly dreaming for. No real new angles were started that I could tell other than Taylor working as a face and pr- um, promptly doing a clean job and maybe Cactus versus Abdullah, but it was never referred to again. So who knows? There's a lot of very good talent in this company, but with the exception of Luger and Anderson versus Zink and Taylor. None of the good work was put in a match that allowed them to showcase their ability. Abdullah showcased his ability to be sure, but Pillman was wasted in a match where he never got tagged in. Imagine that. And it would have been perfect since the guy who, uh, who never got in to hide a hammer champion news, Casimir, Bagwell, whoever in that spot would have been just as effective 
and Pillman could have been put in an opposite Liger situation where they had a four-star tag team match. Looking back at the observer of two weeks ago in a legit blind draw, the matches put together had more potential that the lineup that worked and put being put together could have given the best possible action. So the concept here is Meltzer's thinking that either this was legitimate and they really did do a blind draw or whoever put it together just didn't give a shit. I mean, some of the matchups don't really make much sense. Let's talk about the very first one. Uh, and, and as a reminder, you've got heels on one locker room, baby face. Hey, can, hey, can, can I go back just a little bit? Cause you covered a lot of ground in that yeah. answer um, yeah. recap. Um, th- there were a lot of bad the camera work was horrific. You know, when I got done watching this <clears throat> and, and I'm, you know, giving credibility to what Dave wrote there. Um, two, a couple things that I noticed relative to that commentary from Dave. One, there was a ton of bad camera work, but let's explain, not, not defend or make an excuse for it, but just, it was what it was. And this was a consistent challenge for WCW, even well into 96 and 97 and 98. <clears throat> a lot of the cameramen, if, if you go back and watch this, you'll see Jackie Crockett. Jackie Crockett is on the handheld camera in the corner Jackie Crockett obviously knew what he was doing. He grew up in the business. He covered it a lot. He understood it. He could anticipate what was going to happen and make sure he was shooting where the action was going to be as it was occurring, as opposed to trying to catch up to it. It's a little bit like Wayne Gretzky's, you know, old saying, you know, don't, don't play where the puck is play where the puck's going to be. Well, with wrestling, it's a little difficult to shoot where the puck's going to be. If you've never seen a hockey game before. Yeah. <laughs> all you're doing is constantly catching up. And one of the challenges that WCW had, and it was a glaring challenge here, as Dave pointed out, is that aside from Jackie Crockett, who was the in-house WCW handheld camera guy, and he was almost he was on almost every show from the time I arrived in 91 to the time I left, <clears throat> other than Jackie Crockett, the majority of the, the, the camera crew, the handheld camera crew, um, were not wrestling people. Many of them had never watched wrestling before. So there was no way they could anticipate where the puck was going to be. And they were constantly shooting where the puck was just a second ago. And that's the reason for that. Okay. Just so people understand the complexities of shooting wrestling. Shooting wrestling is not like covering NASCAR or even the NFL or even basketball. Shooting basketball in the NFL or NASCAR or figure skating or whatever it is in in the world of sports is infinitely easier in many respects than shooting professional wrestling because you have to know what's going to happen seconds before it happens in order to get the shot. Um, And that's more than anything a credit to the people on Keith Mitchell's team in AEW on Kevin Dunn's team in, in WWE, because they're good at it. They're very good at it. But when you bring somebody in, who's a freelancer, who's used to shooting soccer, good luck with that. And then the second thing I thought relative to Dave's commentary was 
what a fantastic job Tony Schiavone and Jim Ross did Mm -hmm. because they had to cover and explain, not explain. They had to cover and camouflage and convince the audience that they were seeing something that they weren't seeing throughout this show. I mean, it was tough. That was a tough, tough pay-per-view to be play-by-play in color on. Let's talk about the first match. Jimmy Garvin, who's one of the Freebirds, is going to team with the uh, 38-time Rookie of the Year, Marcus Alexander Bagwell, and they're going to beat Michael Hayes, the other Freebird, and his partner, uh, Tracy Smothers. They go 12 minutes and 42 seconds. Jimmy and Marcus pick up the win after Bagwell pins Smothers with a fisherman suplex. Meltzer would write, our cable went out during this match, so we missed most of it. Actually, the blank TV screen was looking like it was going to be the best match on the card four matches in. Bagwell seems to have a good deal of potential. You watched this back for the first time in a long time. You've been pretty famous to saying you didn't get the free bird gimmick. Uh, Marcus Alexander Bagwell here. I understand why people liked a, a young up and coming, good looking white meat baby face. And boy, I love Tracy Smothers and I'll, I'll never stop saying that on the show here. So I liked seeing my pal, Michael Hayes, and I loved seeing Tracy Smothers, but this match was just sort of there for me. What'd you think? I, I, I guess because I went into the show with a frame of mind that I was going to enjoy it for what it was and not try to critique it, not try to rebook it, not be critical just for the sake of being interesting on a podcast because fuck, it was 30 years ago, folks. Everything was different 30 years ago. Everything was different, but here's what I liked. Here's what I enjoyed this morning about this match. And, and this is probably going to, I'll probably say something similar. I'll try not to be too redundant throughout this show. I, I think if you're listening to this podcast anywhere in the world, and our global, our massive global audience of those who seek not only to better understand the genre they love, but to cut through the nonsense that's out there in the peripheral media. If you strive to be enlightened, you're a fan of this show. If you're proud of the product that you enjoy, you're a fan of this show. And from that perspective, I'll say one of the things that I enjoy, and I encourage anybody that's listening to this anywhere in the world to go to the WWE Network, take a look at it. Not because it's the greatest pay-per-view or the worst pay-per-view, but because you're going to get a look at some of the biggest names in the last 20 years. And some of them are in, you know, some of them are still, their boots still smell new. You know, they're just getting started. Or they're legends who have gone on, you know, they weren't in 1991, but now we hold them in such high esteem, like Art Anderson, for example, or Mick Foley, or Sting, or even Lex Luger at this point. You're going to see Vader ascending to his prime. He's not in his prime. He's he's getting close to his prime. And that's a great time to go back and watch some of these, these talents and performers because you get to look at them in a context that you don't often see them. But you have to remind yourself, this is 1991. Some of these talents are are still learning. They're learning on the job. They're very inexperienced. They're very green. So when I watched this particular match, I enjoyed it. 
because I didn't allow myself to go, oh my God, this is wrong or that's wrong. Or, oh, the timing was horrible on that move. Oh, they botched that. Here's what I enjoyed about the match. We're seeing Marcus Bagwell, who was still green. His boots still smelled new. They weren't even broken in yet. And we're watching this young guy working his guts out, trying to make a name for himself. Tracy Smothers, I loved watching because I, I, I didn't appreciate Tracy Smothers as much then as I do now. Mm. And, and partly because I think Tracy's legacy um, as one of the nicest people in the wrestling business, a, one of the talents that would go out of his way to help as many people as he could who are coming up as new young talents. But now we get to see Tracy Smothers arguably in his prime. Oh, yeah. You know, in prime time. So I loved watching this match. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to have a hard time being critical of it. You know, because it took place 30 years ago when wrestling as we know it today was completely different than it was then. But you're seeing a lot of great action in the ring. Here's here's one. Now I'm going to contradict myself. And I'm, this is not a criticism. This is just an observation. This is a boy. It could have been better if, which is, you know, just gold when you have that 2020 hindsight. Unfortunately, it doesn't do you any good in the moment. But. The Jimmy Garvin, Michael Hayes thing, I liked the way it was set up. And notwithstanding the fact that I, it's not that I didn't get their, their, their gimmick. I certainly got it. It just didn't register really with me the way it did with some people, many people. Um, I think it had a lot of potential. The, 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 the conflict, you, know, you knew there was going to be a point in that match where something was going to go awry and these two friends, tag team partners who were joined at the hip, literally and figuratively, literally and fictionally, you know, we're joined at the hip. We're going to have a moment where there was going to be some tension or conflict between them. So I went into this match knowing that maybe knowing a little more than I should, or not looking at it like a passive fan. Um, the only thing that I, I felt a little disappointed in for them was when it finally happened, when in the heat of the moment, when Michael Hayes, who there was a lot of things going on inside of the ring and, you know, Garvin came up from behind him and, and, and instinctively, you know, Hayes turned around very quickly and fired off a shot, which is believable. That part of it was believable. It wasn't too obvious. Uh, they, they still had me in that moment. And then when they started arguing and then the match continued and developed, neither Hayes nor Garvin were paying any attention to what was going on four feet away from them. So they had basically said, fuck it. I don't care about this match anymore. This is between you and me, which is okay too. I would have bought into that as well. But at the very last second, Garvin turned around and saw the three count and went, he reacted like he was shocked. Oh my God, I didn't realize that was happening. That took me out of the moment. And I only bring that up not to be critical because it's silly to be critical of that at this point. But if you're an aspiring performer, if you're an existing performer, maybe even a seasoned performer, go back and take a look at that and just remember that it's those little details and that scenario, that scene that I just laid out, Jimmy Garvin 
in the middle of his heated argument with Michael Hayes, who would inadvertently, you know, tagged him on the jaw and they started getting into a pushing and shoving concept. If you're going to ignore the match, if the, if, if the intensity of the issue between you and your partner um, is such that you're going to forget about what's going on because this is more important, carry it through. Don't turn around and go, oh, my gosh, I didn't see that when it's happening three or four feet away from you, clearly in your peripheral vision, because that consciously or subconsciously the audience goes, eh, that's not real. Little things. Somebody told me once, I don't remember who it was. doesn't matter. They probably didn't create this saying either, but television, successful television is nothing more than the execution, the successful execution of a lot of little details it's not always the big things. It's more often than not the little things. And this was an example of a little thing <clears throat> from two very experienced talents in Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. That, that, that brief moment took more away from that match than any botched move or poorly timed move <clears throat> that I saw during the course of it. And again, I'm not being critical. Of anybody, I'm just pointing that out because there's always something you can learn from going back and watching these, especially if you're a talent today. Focus on the little things, folks. Makes all the difference in the world, or it can. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or your renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. The next matchup, uh, Rick Rude and Steve Austin are going to take on Van Hammer and Big Josh. When Rude pinned uh, Hammer with the Rude Awakening, uh, Meltzer would write, that finish certainly tells you the mega push for Hammer is over. There was no heat at all when Hammer was in. That's surprising considering hammers, alleged charisma. I use the word alleged because I don't want to be sued for libel. That's Meltzer's comment. Rude didn't sell some of Josh's blows to the stomach because he's got the ripped abs. They then worked on Josh for several minutes to get heat, but that didn't work either. Paulie held Josh and Austin went to jump on him, but Josh moved and Austin jumped on Paul. Josh made the hot tag to hammer who was cleaning house for a few seconds until Austin made a blind tag to rude finished hammer off three quarters of a star. It feels like the, uh, the hammer experiment is, uh, winding down. Well, he was clearly wrong about that because hammer went on continued for several years afterwards. So, um, the prescient nature of Meltzer's commentary clearly is fraudulent. Like so much of everything else that he writes, that's his opinion. Um, here's, here's again, the takeaway, you know, I don't know why I feel like I'm putting on a clinic for aspiring talent. You are. Because <laughs> I'm the wrong person to do it, by the way. But from strictly from a television perspective, maybe I have <clears throat> a little more credibility um, when it comes to shooting wrestling than I do actually wrestling. But if you're, first of all, Hammer, again, he's one of those guys, greener than green. Greener than green. He, he would likely have a hard time at this stage of his career. If, 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 if a Van Hammer from 1990, from December 29th, 1991 
were breaking into the business today, he would have a hard time getting booked on an independent show at this stage of his career. Not a criticism, a fact based on his lack of experience. That said, not being critical of Van Hammer, because we've also covered Van Hammer matches that we were both impressed with. Yes. Later on. Yes. But not 1991. Well, no, it was, I think it was 91. It was, it was the clash before this, but it was him and Foley. And we thought, man, that, you know, I could, maybe it didn't work, but I, I get why they tried it. And, right. you know, uh, we once were convinced that Tom McGee was going to be the next big deal. Cause he was in there with Bret Hart in hindsight, it was Brett. And in hindsight, this was probably Foley, but still, um, it wasn't a total it, that's just because something doesn't work. Doesn't mean it's not worth a try, right? Exactly. Thank you. Profound statement. And I'm not being a smart ass, but that's really true. If you're not trying new things, you're not growing. And if you're willing to try new things, you have to be willing to risk failure. You just have to. Yeah. So my, my point was going to be though, in, in reference to young talent, developing talent, or those who are listening to this podcast, who are aspired to be talent, or maybe some who already are. If you look, if you're a guy like Van Hammer and you're big and you're tall, don't wrestle with your head down. Don't lean forward. Don't do the fake lad spread lumbering around with your head down and your hair hanging down. Cause you think that looks cool. It looks stupid. And and you're killing yourself. You know, I used to, and I, I harp on this often, um, regularly, consistently. You know, if you're five foot 10 and you're wrestling with your head down or you're leaning forward, you're choosing to be five foot eight. If you're six foot tall, you're choosing to be five foot 10. If you want to be a larger than life character, stand up, learn how to sell with your head up. If you've got long hair, throw it back. Don't hang it. You know, Renegade did the same thing. Renegade was, you know, he wasn't that tall of a, of a cat, maybe six foot, six one, whatever he was. But he's he always leaned forward and kind of hung his head down to, to affect the look of his hair hanging in his face. He made himself short. And if you have the advantage like Hammer did here, and you're a big, tall, good-looking dude, what are you doing? Learn how to sell with your head up. That's my point. But Hammer's timing was bad. He was hunched over. He was hanging his head down. He was slow as hell. And we saw him in the in the McFoley match, as you pointed out, or Cactus Jack match. And he was super aggressive. He sold with his head up. He, I mean, you got to look at the character. You could see the expressions in his face. He did a lot of things right in that match, whether it was because of Mick Foley or maybe he just got lucky <laughs> and forgot to kind of be the, the image of himself that he had in his head. Um, but in this particular case, he looked slow. His posture, the way he carried himself in the ring was poor. Um, and this whole thing looked pretty bad as a result. I was glad that it was over with when it was, so I could get on to the next match. The next match is Dustin Rhodes teaming with Richard Morton. Of course he he's here with uh, Alexandria York and they're going to take on your boy, Eligante and Larry Zabisco, six minutes and 11 seconds. I also would say there was no wrestling to speak of here, but it was intriguing and had a good finish. Zabisco and Eligante are arguing. Zabisco slaps Eligante who puts on the claw then throws Zabisco into a double drop kick by Rhodes and Morton for the pin. Three quarters of a star. This is starting to feel like a fever dream 
Uh, these are some weird pairings. I guess that's the intrigue, but it does feel more like a special house show and less like a pay-per-view lot to unpack here. Dustin Rhodes is getting the big push, uh, from dusty Rhodes, who's been back for about a year. Uh, Ricky Morton is looking for, uh, a new lease on life, not as a tag partner, but as a singles competitor. Now he's a heel. Of course, he's the classic baby face. Eligante is uh, a failed experiment from Jim Hurd. who thought he would be uh, a big Andre type attraction just because he was so freaking massive. Uh, Tony Schiavone once uh, described him as a roll of baloney, and it took me a few minutes to get that. And then there's Larry Zabisco, who Arn Anderson has described as a cigar store Indian in their tag matches. Uh, some interesting performers here. Who, who described him as a cigar store Indian? Arn Anderson. That is funny shit. <laughs> Arn is more funny by accident than most people are intentionally. I, I totally <laughs> agree. Uh, Ricky Morton, Dustin Rhodes, Larry Zabisco, three more than capable performers, and Eligante. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Eric, got any Eligante stories? None, you know, well, not really stories, just observations. Um, because I, I never really talked to El Gigante much, a little bit, you know, backstage and things like that, but superficial stuff. But I learned while El Gigante was still there, he was very homesick. He hated being away from home. He didn't enjoy the wrestling business. He didn't aspire to be in the wrestling business. He got, you know, he got the, wow, I'm really tall lottery ticket into the industry, but he didn't <laughs> like it. And more than anything, and I think I may have heard this from him, or it may have been a part of a conversation about him with someone like Jim Ross or Tony. But my understanding was that he absolutely hated being away from home and obviously hated traveling. When you're as big as a guy like El Gigante was, or Andre was, or even a Kevin Nash or Paul White, when you're physically that big, things that you know the average person takes for granted, like getting in and out of a cab or sitting even in first class, or any number of situations, using a public restroom can really be uncomfortable and a challenge and add to that, you know, a, a, a significant amount of homesickness. And you got a guy who's not really engaged in, in what he's doing. And that was pretty obvious here. Not only did he not have the skill set, he, he didn't have the desire. He didn't see himself as a character he needed to be, to be successful. He was just going through the motions and doing what he was told and picking up a paycheck because he was tall. And that's not a criticism. That's just a, it's just an observation. It's a fact. Let's talk about the next match here. We've got, uh, Jushin Liger, one of the better wrestlers in the locker room at this moment, certainly the most innovative teaming with Bill Kazmaier, who was the world's strongest man working a gimmick, working hard, nice guy, taking on another guy, working real hard, trying to make his name diamond Dallas page. Uh, we've really been accustomed to DDP as being the announcer or, or, or in Florida or a manager in Minneapolis. And of course he's been managing diamond stud and lots of other folks here, but now he's in the ring getting a late start, but working hard and teaming with an asshole named Mike Graham. Uh, they're going to go 13 minutes and eight seconds. Liger and Kaz get the win when Liger pins page 
Meltzer would say, what a waste of Liger. Liger did a few nice moves, some of which Graham didn't sell right since he's probably never taken those moves in his entire career. He did do the Liger dive to the floor, but the cameras missed it. Kaz was horrible. Three quarters of a star. I, I have to, uh, listen, I know he's being super negative and it's easy to beat up on that, but can you imagine what perhaps Van Hammer could have done here? If we'd have put a match, with, I don't know, Ricky Morton, or Steve Austin or Brian Pillman or Ricky steamboat. There were a lot of other people who could have showcased what he could have done and, and perhaps shuffling the deck a little bit Kaz could have been with somebody who could have carried him a little more, maybe like a Dustin Rhodes at this point, the booking, I don't know. I'm sure it wasn't, but it starts to feel real. Like, did they really do a blind draw? Because I don't think anyone who had watched wrestling for very long would have come up with these matchups, but maybe that was the idea, you know, styles clash. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, and you actually mentioned the, uh, you know, it appears like it was either a random drawing for real or whatever, whatever you said, you know, Dave's opening, you know, commentary that you covered this, this wasn't random. This was by design, like everything else in wrestling. So there's no, that's just the way it happened. I, I wish that was an excuse but it wasn't again. Look at this was pages. This was DDP's very first pay-per-view. Think about that. that. Yeah. He's in there with Jushin Thunder Liger. (laughs) Want to make it worse? Balanced with Bill Kazmaier and Mike Graham. DDP DDP and Bill, and this is not, again, I'm not criticizing anybody. This is just a fact. This is where we were in 1991. Bill Kazmaier, no real wrestling, very little wrestling experience, very limited skill sets, hadn't really figured out what his character was, probably because he was getting a lot of input from a lot of different people and was trying to figure it out based on the last person that he talked to. And I understand that. That's not a criticism. That happens. When you walk into the world of professional wrestling, you know, now Bill Kazmaier got his break because of who Bill Kazmaier was as the world's strongest man. Somebody went, hey, let's get the world's strongest man in professional wrestling because people will go, ooh, ah. There, therein lied the log- logic there, I'm, I'm guessing, but I'm safe bet. Same with El Gigante. Same logic, right? Same strategy. Bill didn't have any experience. Not enough to be in the position that he was in DDP didn't have any experience, not enough, not to be in a position that he was in. Liger did. Graham clearly didn't. Graham looked like crap in this match. His timing was off. There was no real psychology. Nothing he did was believable. He, he didn't sell well. And I, and part of this is me because I know better, you know, I felt bad for Liger because Liger had to dumb his game down a lot in order to get through this match. I can only imagine what was going through Liger's mind when he found out he was going to be in the ring with Kazmaier, DDP, who combined may have had six months worth of legitimate wrestling experience under their belt as performers. And then Mike Graham, who honestly wasn't able to do a third of the things that I remember him, you know, criticizing talent for not doing. It was just horrible as a match. I enjoyed it because I have a fond memory 
of Bill Kazmaier. I enjoyed it because DDP is a very close friend of mine and I love watching here's where they were and here's how they ended up. I love that journey, especially with people that I have affection for or have known, even if I don't, you know, consider them a close friend or anything. I love that. I love going back and watching this stuff. Um, it's kind of like watching, you know, home movies and going, wow, that's what I looked like when I was a little kid. Oh, wow. Um, so I, you know, I enjoyed watching the match, but I, I did take note how absurd it was from a creative perspective. And they spent a lot of time, you know, on, on Graham <clears throat> and Liger, probably because in Mike Graham's mind, he thought he was as good as Liger and nobody could give Liger, you know, a better match than Mike Graham. Why the hell, especially if they were coming again, I didn't know any of this as I was watching the preview or watching the episode this morning to, to prep for this. But if, if somebody in WCW knew, whoever knew, whoever was booking the house shows, whoever the agents were reporting back to the person booking the house shows, that Pillman and Lager were blowing the roof off, why in the hell would you not book them in a match on a pay-per-view? Right. I mean, to, to this point, you know, I clearly agree with Dave and I mean, your observation or Dave's or both makes no sense. Mike Graham had zero skill sets when it came to working at a level with someone like Jushin Liger. He maybe in his head, he did, but in reality, he didn't page clearly didn't Kazmaier. I mean, it's just, the whole thing was a mess. A mess. That's the right word. I can't wait to get your reaction to the next write-up. First of all, we got a lot of great wrestlers in there. Lex Luger, Arn Anderson, Terry Taylor, and Tom Zink. Those are four very capable performers. And Meltzer liked it. Three and a quarter stars. But check out this write-up from The Observer. Lex Luger and Arn Anderson beat Terrence, the world's most unappreciated great wrestler, Ter Taylor, and Tom <laughs> Zink. In 10 minutes and 25 seconds. Taylor you know why I'm laughing, Conrad. <laughs> I apologize for interrupting, but God, you just proved a massive point that I've been making for about 116 episodes. Taylor worked as a face and was the best wrestler on the show thus far as he got one pinning move on after another on Luger. He was finally stopped as he set up the five arm with the blind knee to the back from Anderson. Luger pinned Taylor with the pile driver from a wrestling standpoint. This blew away everything else on the card, three and a quarter stars, but my God, Terrence, the world's most unappreciated, great wrestler, Taylor. You know, that reminds me somebody, and I wish I had it sitting in front of me right now. Cause I'd put this person over, but somebody sent me an email, you know, cause I get a lot of social media. Well, you know, he's beating up on Dave Meltzer. Why don't you let it go? You harp too much. And then I get other people that go, God, keep doing it. Keep doing it. We love it. We love it. But you know, I've, somebody sent me a, a, on social media. I don't understand. Cause obviously this is someone who's heard me, you know, pontificate ad nauseum about Dave Meltzer, but this person asked a valid question. You know, why would somebody who's a talent, leak information to a dirt sheet writer. And I was about to respond, but you can't do it in 140 characters, right? And this is the example. This is the reason why, folks. Pay close attention to what I'm about to say, because I'm going to answer questions that so many people have had. The reason a talent, in this case, Terry Taylor, leaks information to someone 
like Dave Meltzer, I'm trying so hard to stay in a holiday spirit here. I am trying so hard. I don't think I've dropped an F-bomb yet, and I'm trying so hard not to beat up too hard on Dave Meltzer, but I must address the obvious that was so entertaining in the way you read that, which is Dave Meltzer would put over people who would feed him information. It was quid pro fucking quo, people. There, I dropped the F-bomb. I'm sorry. It's quid pro quo. The same reason politicians and in news media jerk each other off when no one's looking. It's the same reason. And this right here is a crystal clear example of, of how Dave and why Dave would get information that wasn't real, but it would certainly serve the talent. That was the quid and the pro of it all. And then Dave would go out and he would put this talent over. And why would that be important to someone like a Taylor, Terry Taylor? Notice I said like a Terry Taylor, because there's a lot of them out there because that talent knew that there were certain people within TBS. In this case, this individual's name was Jeff Carr, who was the program director at TBS. And because nobody else in TBS knew anything at all about wrestling. And most of the people in TBS with the exception of Ted Turner, didn't want to know anything about professional wrestling. Jeff Carr, who was, and he was a decent guy. I don't want to beat up on him too much, but it is what it is. And it was what it was. Jeff Carr was like the ultimate dirt sheet mark. So whatever Jeff Carr would read would eventually trickle down and end up on Dusty Rhodes' desk or Jim Hurd's desk, which means it would get to, to, to Dusty Rhodes' desk. So Dusty Rhodes, I've been there. I know what I'm talking about, folks. Dusty Rhodes is now dealing with the opinion and the influence, however illegitimate, unfounded, and self-serving it was for both parties in their quid pro quo relationship. You have to deal with it. And it drives you batshit. So when I've said things before, and I'm sure people, when they hear it, they go, what is he talking about? Why, why does he think, you know, anything that Dave would write would have a negative impact on the industry? This is a perfect example. Perfect example of why any talent would leak or create stories and feed them to Dave because they do. Dave was like a fucking parrot. If you fed him a cracker and taught him a word, he'd repeat it. It was predictable. It was dependable. And they used each other. And unfortunately, it hurt the business. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Sorry. What did you think of the match? I loved it. <laughs> I agree with Dave's observation. It was good. Uh, I, but what's not to love? The timing was great. Um, Terry Taylor didn't stand out to me. I thought Terry did a good job. I thought Terry looked probably better in this match than possibly any match I remember covering. And when I haven't covered a lot of Terry Taylor matches, his name doesn't often come up when we, you know, recap shows, <clears throat> but I thought Terry looked really good. He was inspired. His timing was good. His execution was good, but so was everybody else's in that match. I don't think Terry stood out at all. I thought Lex Luger looked great. Lex Luger looked great. Uh, Arn Anderson looked great. I mean, everybody Arn always looks great. Yeah. Arn has Arn Anderson ever had a bad match that you can recall? Renegade. That's it. 
God, you were, you were, you were just, I don't know how you do it, brother. I mean, you do a lot of shows. You see, you know, it's like, I sit down and I talk to you for two or three hours once a week. And I, th I think, my God, how does he do that? But you do this five times a week. Yeah. This is my third one today. It's ridiculous how you're able to retain all this information. I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. <laughs> and you can remember all this information. You can pull an Arn Anderson renegade botch match right out of your little bag of Conrad Thompson tricks. <laughs> and you have it sitting right in front of you. All I have to do is ask the question. Boom. It's right there in front of me. That's amazing how you do that. Okay. So one bad match. Yeah. Arn looked great. So did everybody else. Why Dave Meltzer felt the need. Oh, wait a minute. I've already answered that. Okay. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's talk about the next one. We got Ricky Steamboat. And Todd, quote, one half of the world's most uncoordinated tag team champion, uh, beat Cactus Jack and Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. Suffice to say, uh, Todd champion did not have a hotline hookup. Uh, they go seven minutes and 48 seconds. Meltzer would say Parker got up, uh, from his chair before they even announced him as Jack's partner, Abdul, the butcher in the heel dressing room, then destroyed Parker while all the other heels stood by nonchalantly and didn't even seem to watch. The gimmick was that Abby was mad because he wasn't Cactus's partner. I think he was just doing the dirty work because Parker violated kayfabe by getting up from his chair before his name was called. <laughs> Abby gave Parker tremendous headshots with the kendo stick. Parker got out of the dressing room and onto the stage and Abby attacked him again and tried to go to the ring to be Jack's partner, but the refs wouldn't let him steamboat and cactus did a hot open while Parker crawled from the stage to the ring. It was every bit as good with steamboat working with cactus as it was bad. When champion was in the ring, finally, Parker got to the ring was immediately tagged in and quickly pinned by steamboats, flying body press a star and a half. I actually like the story here that you got this madman from the Sudan. Who's super pissed off that he can't be with his tag partner. Well, this seems simple. Let me beat up the guy who's supposed to have that spot and I'll get the spot. He perseveres, but by the time he gets there, he ain't worth shit. And, uh, Ricky steamboat pins him. I liked it. I love cactus Jack in this era. I think Ricky steamboat still at the top of his game. Todd champion was there. Um, and, and that's about all we can say star and a half. What'd you think? I, I, I like you. I, I liked it because it made a little sense storyline wise. And obviously the characters were super strong, you know, um, with the exception of champion, you have three of the probably hottest, arguably three of the hottest names, maybe the top 10 hottest names in the business at that point. Um, so I, I liked it. At least there was a story there. At least there was an attempt at a story. Whereas the rest of this card, it just, with the exception of the Garvin Hayes incident, at the very beginning, there was just nothing going on story-wise. And I think that's a point that I wanted to make too early on in this. By the way, I've got some amazing trivia December 29th, 1776, Charles McIntosh patented waterproof fabric and he was born in Scotland. And on December 29th in 1852, Emma Snodgrass was arrested in Boston for wearing pants. Now, why would I bring up those two references in the middle of this podcast? Because at least it's a story. At least it's interesting. And so far throughout this this pay-per-view up until this particular match, nothing that has happened so far was as interesting as those little two pieces of trivia. I was really ready for you to say, you know, my relationship with liverwurst 
Uh, well, you want to know another piece of trivia? Whoa, I just lost my lights. Holy crap. Wow. You got to see this, boys and girls. Get on ad free shows. Whoa, that was scary. I got to get some better equipment. I am just, I'm such a, I'm like the podcast equivalent of trailer park trash. <laughs> <laughs> I got shit hanging up by scotch tape and it's one of these days i'm going to get around to fixing this thing <laughs> god I, oh i'm embarrassed am i blushing no i love it let's talk about am the I next blushing? match i'm it's- so sorry on december 29th in 1982 this is going to be near and dear to your heart do you know what happened on december 29th 1982 conrad no come on think for a second you know. had that arn anderson renegade match right on the tip of your tongue I have no idea. Coach Paul Bear Bryant ended his career with Alabama. Oh, see, I was one. I don't. I don't he know. logged. Doesn't matter. He logged three hundred and twenty-three wins. He did okay. He retired on this day in nineteen eighty-two. I I picked that up just for you, Conrad. Just I appreciate for you. that. Roll title that. Merry Christmas. Do you own or rent your home? Sure, you do. And I bet it can be hard work. But you know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or your renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. Hey, how about the next match, man? You want to talk about some talent? How about sting teaming with Abdullah the butcher? Okay. That's interesting. And they're going to take on Bobby Eaton and Brian Pillman. They go five minutes, 37 seconds, uh, sting pinned Eaton with a flying body press. Meltzer says it was pretty exciting from start to finish. Abdullah attacks sting before the match. Pillman makes the save. It breaks down to Abby versus Pillman and sting versus Eaton for a while. Actually sting and Eaton were the entire match. Although Pillman did do a big splash on Abby sting did a great job on Eaton. Abby kept attacking sting throughout the match. Cactus comes out and hits Abdullah with the kendo stick when sting ducks. And then Sting flew on to Eaton while Pillman kept Abdullah from breaking up the pin that would cause Pillman's team to lose. After the match, Abdullah and Cactus brawled to the dressing room, which under normal circumstances would make me believe that one of them is about to turn. But since we're not talking about a normal promotion that does things that lead to something else, and instead one that just runs angles to fill time and then forgets about it 15 seconds later, who really knows? Okay, it didn't make a lot of sense, but there's a lot of big names in there. A lot of big stars in there. A lot of my favorites in there. I kind of dug it as crazy as it is three and a quarter stars. What'd you think? Yeah, I kind of fast forwarded through this. Um, it didn't, I watched probably the first half of it trying to get interested in it enough to watch it all, hoping that something was going to jump out and get me excited, but it didn't happen. And I'm not going to lie. I kind of skimmed through this one. Um, just didn't, it didn't, it didn't get a hold of me in the opening, you know, hear me talk about three act structures. If you don't get my attention in the first couple of minutes, I'm probably not going to pay attention at the end. And that's kind of how I felt about this one. Uh, next up, we've got big van Vader teaming with Mr. Hughes to take on Rick Steiner and the night stalker. Of course, the night stalker we know is Brian Clark. He's going to go on to uh, be uh, Adam bomb in the WWF. They go five minutes and six seconds. Vader splashes stalker. And that's all she wrote. 
Meltzer says it's been a long time since I've seen someone blow a big splash spot, but stalker nearly did. Rick Steiner was doing great power moves on both big guys and particularly worked well with Vader with stiff shots back and forth. Stalker tagged in and was lost and then was pinned at the same time. Steiner was hitting a bulldog off the top rope on Hughes star in three quarters. I got to tell you, I loved Rick Steiner in this match. You know, big van Vader, we know is going to develop into being a giant bully on camera and perhaps out of the ring, depending on who you believe, but certainly on camera. And it was fun for me to watch. But to know what we know behind the scenes about what a badass Rick Steiner is and to see him delivering some live rounds here back and forth, that was good shit. And it made me wish that Steiner had more of a singles run in this era. What'd you think watching this one back? I loved it. And again, it's more because of a personal relationship with Rick um, than anything. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, one of the things I enjoy watching these things for, especially when we go back as far as we do, um, is... <clears throat> or as we have on this show, is you're seeing people, in this case, again, put Rick off to the side for a moment. You know, Vader is ascending here. Vader is not at the peak of his career here. He's getting there. And I love seeing people at this stage of their careers. Um, I love the match. I love the physicality. You know, Rick Steiner, Scott Steiner, you know, has the the rep as the badass, you know, backstage, and deservedly so. He, he was. Um but Rick, probably more so. I, I, I guess, you know, the, the question always was, you know, kind of backstage in a, in a fun way. You know, I wonder if Rick and Scott ever tangled who'd come out on top. Almost everybody that I talked to about that, and again, it was fun conversation. It wasn't serious. But pretty much everybody agreed Rick, Rick would come out on top of that. And because, you know, I was became such good friends with Rick, and even after I left WCW, you know, one of the best trips I've ever taken in my life away from my family <clears throat> was a, a hunting trip that Rick Steiner and I took. I think it was in 2000. We took, or 2001, we went up to just south of the Arctic Circle, I think. We were way up in, in the northern Yukon Territories hunting elk and moose. We were together for like 10 or 12 days. Had such an amazing time and such great memories. So for me to be able to go back and see Rick at this stage of his career and letting loose is I, I, I dug it. I'm like you, I, I got a big kick out of it. Next up. We've got the other half of the Steiner, Scott Steiner teaming with your favorite chip, the firebreaker, and they're going to beat Arachnaman and Johnny B bad. Unbelievably. They get 11 minutes and 16 seconds. Scott's going to pin Brad with an over the head, belly to belly suplex. Uh, this match went too long for it being this late in the show. Some spots were good, but it really dragged star and a quarter boy. Talk about the box of gimmicks. We sometimes make fun of Bruce for some of the silly gimmicks that we've had, but how about chip, the firebreaker and Arachnaman? That's pretty bad. It was a sign of the times. And, and we started off early in this podcast talking about if you're not willing to try new things and risk the failure that sometimes ensues, then you shouldn't be in the entertainment business. You can quote me on that. I've lived in my life that way. However, with all due respect to Mr. Hurd, Arachnaman? It's pretty bad. Oh my God. Who was Arachnaman? Was that Brad Armstrong? Yes, it was. Not 
Not what good. A crimi- what a criminal misuse of great talent. If you're going to put somebody under, now this is going to sound so negative. Oh my God. I don't want to sound anything like Dave Meltzer, but Steve Armstrong was a great wrestler. We're going to see him later on. Right. Or have we seen him already? No, we're going to see him later on in the show. Yeah. He's in the next match. Not the best looking guy in the world. The camera wasn't necessarily his best friend. Put him under a hood. Brad looked great. Brad was telegenic. The camera loved Brad. Brad had great facial expressions. Put the guy without the great facial expressions. is not quite so telegenic under the hood. If you're going to do a hooded comic book character, put the hood on the right guy. Right. Oh, this was so bad. But. It was 1991. People yep. were still wearing bell-bottom pants. Maybe I don't know. Well, they were wearing neon colors and slap bracelets, and uh, yeah. Hey, by the way, do you know what the number one selling Christmas present was in 1991? Cabbage Patch Kid, huh? Cabbage Patch doll. No, it was Super Nintendo. Oh yeah, I could get that. It went on to sell 49 million units. Think they made some money? Made a buck, maybe two. Next up, Ron Simmons is going to team with Thomas Rich. Again, he's with uh, Alexandria York here, and they're going to beat Steve Armstrong and P and News. I can't believe, again, let's, let's recap. Chip the Firebreaker and Johnny B. Bad, 11 minutes. Uh, Thomas Rich and P and News, 1144. Uh, Pillman and Sting and Bobby Eaton, five minutes. Uh, Ricky Steamboat and Cactus Jack, 748. I don't understand how the show was timed here. I guess is my point, but either way, Armstrong really tries to make it a good match, but there's nothing to interest anyone with it at this point. And again, they went too long for a match this late in the show. Three quarters of a star PN news. Got any good PN news stories you can share with us? Zero. Zero. And that's all there is to say about him. Uh, Thomas Rich, Ron Simmons, Steve Armstrong, a lot of great talented wrestlers, but boy, you just, you mix it up and it's, it's not that great of a match here. Chemistry, brother. We all, we often, you know, people talk about match chemistry or chemistry between individuals. And and we all kind of think we know what that means. And probably we do more often than not. Here's an example of bad chemistry. If you don't understand good chemistry, take a look at bad chemistry and you'll figure it out really quick. This match will shed all kinds of light on bad chemistry because of the talent that was in the ring. It just didn't click at all. It was horrible. And, you know, again, I find myself, you know, as much as I hated agreeing with Dave, who the hell would give this 11 minutes? You know, why not? You got Ron Simmons in there. Why not just let them go in and put us all out of our misery and end this thing in about two and a half minutes and look like something unbeatable to build anticipation for what might happen, you know, when it finally comes down to two people. That's the other thing about this show, pay-per-view, that I have a real hard time with is the audience, you know, again, go back and look at this. It's a lesson, folks. If, again, if you're aspiring, if you're in the business, if you just want to feel like you understand things more. It's important to understand all the aspects of, of, of putting on a great event. And one of the things you can do to help you understand what's working and what's not working, aside from your subjective opinion, is watch the crowd. 
I, I remember thinking several times this morning watching the show, this crowd looks like a crowd that might be watching a tennis match. It was the most, is it unanimated or inanimated? Non-animated. I'll take non. <laughs> it was the most non-animated crowd I've ever seen. Now, there, was, there were a couple spots where they got into it a little bit. But, man, oh, man, this was just really, really hard to watch because the show had no story. There was nothing other than the Garvin Hayes so far. That's the only glimpse of a seed to a potential story. That's how deep we're digging here, folks. It wasn't a story. It was what could probably be better defined as a, as a minor angle within the context of a match that had the potential of becoming a story. And then there's the Abdulistic thing. Okay, I'm going to throw it in the towel and give you that one too. But, man, th there was nothing happening in these early matches that created any sense of anticipation or allowed the viewer at home or in the arena to go, whoa, what if, what if Ron, oh, my God, Ron Simmons looks like he's on fire. So that if Ron Simmons doesn't make it, at least it has some impact. At least it's taking you on a little bit of a roller coaster. Whoa, Ron Simmons. Oh, Ron, oh, Ron Simmons. But this guy, this guy, oh, that guy. There was none of that. There was no semblance of story within the context of the pay-per-view. Yes, in, in, in one or two of the matches, there was glimpses of story, but they were standalone. It wasn't a cohesive or coherent thread through the entire pay-per-view. So you had to sit for two hours and 40 some odd minutes to get to Luger and Sting. Ugh, wow. Let's, uh, let's mention the, they, we've got this whole two ring battle Royal pay-per-view battle Royal suck. According to Meltzer, I think he's right. He says the Royal rumble is usually good because there's not so many in the ring at the same time. And you can actually work spots and follow the action. But everyone of the ring at the same time does not make for good TV. He says the final spot was good enough to elevate it from a dud to half a star. It gets down to, uh, rude throwing steamboat over steamboat pulls himself up, grabs a head scissors on rude flips him over while hanging on as steamboat tried to flip himself back in the ring rude from the floor, pulled him out at 1737. And Meltzer says an interesting trivia note is that the final two men left in ring one were Luger and Vader, both heels and both holding respective world titles of WCW and the IWGP. Uh, of course, Vader captured the IWGP belt just one week prior from Tatsumi Fujinami. So it's a pretty big deal, you know, to get down to those last two guys. I mean, even the last four, it's, it's, it's a star studded affair, man. Rude, Austin, Sting and Steamboat. Uh, ultimately though, uh, Sting's going to throw Luger out in 629 to win the battle Royal early Sting gave rude a rude awakening before the match even started. Sting works his comeback though. And Harley race takes a couple of perfect form bumps. According to Dave Meltzer before tossing or before Sting tossed Luger over to win. And while some may complain about the obvious predictability of the finish, it pretty well had to be done this way since Luger is off most of the next two months. And they had to do something that would set up Luger Sting at the next pay-per-view two and three quarters of a star. You know, I get it's predictable and there's a lot of stuff on the show that I didn't really dig just how random it was. Maybe it would have been better if they had another draw, maybe two draws was too much, but another draw to determine an order and doing it Royal rumble style. 
but maybe they felt like they couldn't and that would have been gimmick infringement or copying or playing follow the leader whatever but that part was a mess but when it comes down to the last few i kind of dug it and um i don't know it's i went into it with with horrible expectations the super lowest of expectations and i came away thinking okay there was a lot of bad there was a couple of good things I, I had a hard time sitting through it. My tenants, my, I was tempted several times to fast forward through it, but I knew we we're going to be covering it and that's cheap and I'm not doing my job if I do that. So I sat through it and so many times throughout this portion of the show, I had to keep my mind from wandering. It's like in a room of 23 people, there's a 50% chance of two individuals having the same birthday month, day only, not only a leap year. The chance of increases to 99% if there are 70 people in the room of someone having the same birthday with you with a 50% probability. This is called the birthday paradox or the birthday problem. That's an example of where my fucking mind went as I was watching the majority of this. It just was so hard not to quit paying attention. Now, granted, as it got towards the end, as one would expect, um, it got a little more exciting. I agree with you there. I don't care if the finish was predictable. It created emotion. And you can see it in the crowd. They wanted Sting to win. They were invested in Sting as a character. And the fact that he prevailed. And the match, you know, the, the action between the two of them, I thought was very good. <clears throat> so although it was predictable... And as Dave pointed out, there was probably, probably, probably logistical reasons as to why it had to go down the way it had to go down. It didn't really matter to the audience. They dug it. And if you can send the audience home happy, hopefully, hopefully, they'll forget about how bad everything else was. Maybe they did. Maybe the people that bought tickets, and I don't know how many people actually bought a ticket to the show. My guess is very few of them. The majority of them, I'm sure, were papered, or a good percentage of them were. But hopefully they left on such a high note, they forgot how bad their experience was for two hours and 40 minutes leading up to this finish. Let's do some questions. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, different questions from people who, uh, who watch this show and wanted to pick your brain. Before we do, I want to mention... Uh, the best match poll, according to the wrestling observer, it was Luger and Anderson against zinc and Taylor, the worst match. That's because of Taylor though. Right. That's clearly, clearly Terry Taylor. It was neck and neck for worst match though. Bubba, the, uh, the Vader and Hughes match against stalker and Steiner that won, but just barely edging out Simmons and rich against Armstrong and news, but that just barely edged out Liger and cows against page and Graham. And that just barely beat the battle Royal. It was, uh. It was a, it was a tough night for bad matches because there were plenty, but there were some good performers. Uh, JBL Cena fan wants to know why not have Luger have a title match and why not have the winner of a battle bowl, get a title shot at super brawl stakes. So super brawl is the big February pay-per-view. We've often talked about stakes. Sting is going to get a title shot against Luger. So I guess that's mission accomplished, but perhaps it could have been positioned a little more clearly, much like the Royal rumble has. And it would have been nice to see uh, Luger in singles competition here with a defense. If you could have booked him defending against somebody here, and I realize you weren't booking, you were quote unquote, just an announcer. Who would you have liked to have seen Luger defend against here? 
I don't have to give that some thought. I mean, they were both heels, so it wouldn't have worked, but Luger and Rude would have been fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, again, both heels, but if we're going to go down that road, I think Cactus Jack getting a title shot against Lex Luger could have been interesting. I agree. Now, you might have had a chemistry issue there. Not a chemistry issue, but just different skill sets. Well, here's the thing. I'm just saying Luger, I mean, not Luger, Foley made it work against Hammer. He couldn't do it against Luger? Come on. I think at that point, Hammer was probably much more malleable and coachable than Luger would have been. I think he'd had a, I think he would have had a chemistry issue there. Mike Messier says I was in the audience for this show and it really didn't pick up for the crowd until Luger squared off against Sting at the end of the night for Eric and others backstage. When did it become apparent that this format was a misstep? And then why did they repeat it several more times? I can't answer the, why did they repeat it question? And I, I wasn't really watching it backstage. You know, I would look as, as the third string announcer, I didn't have a seat at anybody's table. So I didn't have a monitor sitting in my office. I didn't have an office by the way. Um, I barely had a dressing room. I think I got dressed in the hallway. So, um, I didn't really have access to watch the show. Now I could go by and peek through the curtains and I did a couple of times, but I didn't really watch the whole show until this morning. Oh, goodness. Two more. And then we'll wrap things up. Ray wants to know a starcade without a world title match. Kind of surreal. Don't you think? I think that goes back to, you know, what, what's our goal here? What's the, what is the vision? Is it a massive spectacle that can lead to a story or is it a story that leads to a spectacle? This was a spectacle without a story. One last one. Then we'll, uh, we'll get out of here today and wrap it up. Um, Robert wants to know, how was the boy's perception of Jim Hurd at this point? We know we're winding down. We know he's gone the very next month. Were you hearing any sort of whispers or rumor and innuendo about Jim Hurd? Any sort of pushback at all? I'm sure there was, and I, I hate to keep going back to this, but I was like the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil monkey. You know, I was that guy. <laughs> so, I, I, yes, there was, but I wasn't around it. I stayed away from it. You know, Paige and I would talk a little bit more than me and anybody else, um, a lot more than me and anybody else. But even Paige and I didn't really, you know, Paige was looking for opportunity. He wasn't dwelling on negative. He was looking for cracks that he could find a way to stick his foot into to open a door, more so than bitching about things. And I was the, I was the monkey see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. So I'm sure that there was, but not around me. Well, that's going to do it boys and girls. Uh, Starcade 91 is in the books. Eric, give us your Bischoff score scale of one to 10. I know you don't like the star system. You like this one to 10. What do you give Starcade 91? I'm reaching deep for a two. Well, just the lack of format, the lack of story, the bad matchups, 
the lack of drama, poor execution in so many of the matches as a result of bad matchmaking, not because the talent didn't have the potential to have great matches, but you just can't always just mix and match people and expect a good outcome. You've got to mix and match people according to their skill sets and chemistry. And none of that was happening here till the end, but throughout two hours and 40 or 43 minutes of the show, it was just so freaking random with no sense of story or direction, no anticipation, nothing. So it, I'm giving it a two because it made it to air. I don't know why that's funny for me. It is though, by the way, you can get all these shows early and ad free. You can even see the video of what we're doing uh, over at adfreeshows.com. We haven't yet revealed what we're doing for January yet. Eric, are you ready for us to give a little bit of a tease? Tease me, baby. Tease me. Well, that sounded kinky. It does. Maybe I won't do it exactly how you hoped though. January 4th, <laughs> we're going to cover. Can we, can we get a little porn music kind of going in the background just to set the mood? Matt oh, Coon, it's the holiday season. Listen to me go off. Matt Coon, if you put porn music under this, I, you're dead to me. Uh, <laughs> TNA Genesis 2011 is what we'll be back with next week. Boys and girls, January 4th, it went down on January 9th, 2011. So just in time for the 10 year anniversary. We'll continue Eric's trek through TNA. We're also going to cover WCW sin that happened on January 14th, back in 2001, it'll be the 20 year anniversary. We're going to cover it on January 11th. We're also going to do something kind of fun. Uh, we're going to have Eric watch, I think for the very first time, an episode of raw from January 19th, 1998. What happened? Mike Tyson pushed Steve Austin and uh, the Monday night wars were about to take a turn. That should be pretty fun on the January. I can't wait to do that show with you. That there's a, there are, in my opinion, there are a few really seminal moments, moments that have changed the industry forever. That was one of them. Lot to talk about there. That was one of them. And then we'll wrap up the month. Uh, when we finish out January. Uh, talking about clash of the champions 32. We'll do that one on January 25th. It'll be the 25th anniversary of this clash. It went down in Caesar's palace in Las Vegas, public enemy with the nasty boys, Dean Malenko and Alex, Wright, Brian Pillman and Eddie Guerrero sting and Lex Luger taking on the blue bloods, uh, Conan and psychosis. And then in the main event, flair teaming with the giant against Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. There's something hilarious that happens at the end of that match. I've always wanted to ask you about, and we're going to talk about it. And of course, 1996 is really a pretty famous year for WCW. We're just a few months away from the NWO, uh, setting the entire territory on fire, but this is a famous show, not only because of the silliness of the main event, but Brian Pillman and Eddie Guerrero have a moment that involves Bobby Heenan that people still talk about to this day. So I'm excited for what's coming in January. I'm excited for 2021. And I'm excited that you guys are with us. We can't thank you enough for all of your support this year. It's been one heck of a year for us here on the show. We've tried really hard to distract you from the silliness and nonsense of COVID-19 and a crazy election cycle. And there's been a, a lot of challenges this year. And I think we're all hoping that 2021 is a little better. And we hope that we were at least a part of the bright, the bright spots of your 2020. Isn't that right, Eric? It's more than right. Um, you hit it right on the head and doing this show has made my 2020 infinitely better. This is one of the 
this is one of the things that I look forward to the most every week in doing the show and in the process of going back and, and, and exploring and learning and analyzing in uh, the relationships that we're developing with our audience is made 2020 an awesome year for me. Probably one of the most fun years I've had, uh, even indirectly in the wrestling business. So thank you to everybody for making this show possible, especially to you, Conrad, and your team. Well, we appreciate all you guys' support. We hope you'll click the subscribe button. We hope you'll check us out on YouTube. And of course, if you get a chance, we'd love to have you take a peek at adfreeshows.com. We're working really hard to give you a unique experience over there, more than your money's worth, and we're getting good reviews. Uh, go check it out if you haven't already at adfreeshows.com or just see what people are saying at isadfreeforme.com. Until next time, he is at ebischoff on Twitter. I am at hey, hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Derek Bischoff. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or your renters insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.